Chapter 7, The Slaughter. Okay, I'm so excited about this chapter. Like, I think this chapter, above all, is the chapter that Amber fans are thinking of when they say, oh, it'd be so cool if they made a movie out of Amber. Or, like, Amber should be a series. Like, I think this chapter, probably above all, is the first thing that we think of when we think about bringing Amber to the big screen. I mean, you've got the final march on Amber, and you've got just the continuing slaughter of the army of Corwin and Blaze. And the pace is intense as they get closer and closer to Amber. Zelazny describes attack after attack. It's setback after setback. You've got the burning of the Valley of Garneth. Eric has got control of the weather at this point, as predicted. And he's using the jewel, and he'll do anything to stop these guys. It's basically a massive, all-out war. They start with 300,000 men, and by the end of the chapter, literally all of them will be dead. He says, quote, We were attacked by tiger, polar bear, and wolf that day. The tiger that Blaze killed measured over 14 feet from tail tip to nose, end quote. He talks about the weather and uh, just this demoralizing march through the cold and how it's bad for the guys with red skin. And At one point, I wanted to call this out. Corwin says, quote, Blaze pushed the troops to get them out of the cold shadows. The trump for Amber indicated that a warm, dry autumn prevailed there, end quote. And I love the fact that he's using the trump of Amber to check the local meteorological conditions like it's some kind of weather app, you know? It's uh, maybe another way in which Trump's kind of remind us of modern-day smartphones. And then finally, they march and they march and they get to Amber. And the weather clears, and Corwin says, quote, by high noon, we were crossing the valley that paralleled the seacoast. The forest of Arden was to the north and our left. Amber lay directly ahead. End quote. And they're kind of reinforcing the geography that Random and Corwin and Deirdre followed. Kind of coming up through the same area. They're not as close to the water as Random and Deirdre and Corwin were. Amber's about 80 miles up ahead, he says. And they're marching and they're marching and then eventually they smell smoke. And suddenly there's this massive fire moving toward them. And Eric has basically set the whole valley on fire. He'll stop at nothing. And there's this awesome action sequence. Corwin says, quote, To burn this ancient wood as venerable as the forest of Arden seemed almost an act of sacrilege to me. But Eric was prince in amber and soon to be king. I suppose I might have two, end quote. And then we get more geography. He says 70 miles of wooded valley lay between them and Amber and that there's 30 behind them. So we know that this is a hundred mile wide valley. And he sort of makes it sound like, you know, there's the forest and then there's the valley and then there's Colvier kind of in this straight progression. But we, we do know that the forest wraps around the valley. So if they were to look to their left... To the west, they'd also see the forest kind of up high. They might even see the spot where the Mercedes was ditched. And the smoke is getting to them. He says his hair is singed. There's flames everywhere. And 
you know, they're pretty worried they're going to lose everybody in this fire. And then Corwin has an idea. He says, quote, Blaze, I gasped. Two or three miles ahead of us, the trail forks. The right branch comes more quickly to the river Oisin, which goes down to the sea. I think it's our one chance. The whole valley of Garneth is going to be burned. Our only hope lies in reaching the water, end quote. And Blaze agrees, and they push forward, and they get to the fork, and they're basically trying to find the water. Now let's talk for a second about the river Oisin. It's actually probably pronounced Ushin, but I'm not entirely sure, so I'm going to use this like Americanized version of that Oisin. Oisin, or Ushin, is a hero from Irish folklore. He's a warrior poet. He stars in a story called Oisin and Tirnanog. And Tirnanog, as we discussed previously, is this supernatural realm out of Irish mythology. It means land of the young. And, you know, Zelazny is basically continuing with his Irish references here. You've got Deirdre, Moira, Tirnanaga, Lear, and now Oisin. And Valley of Garneth, I've not been able to come up with any reference for that name. It has been used in a bunch of like fantasy works, including World of Warcraft, but it's possibly something that Zelazny just invented. And so anyway, what happens next, they do eventually get to the river and they're just getting hammered by the fire and they're starting to get hammered by archers. Uh, and they're just being picked off like sitting ducks and Corwin comes up with this plan where he basically decides he's going to dive into the river, stay underwater for as long as he can, and that way he won't get burned, and he also won't get hit by the arrows. And he comes up for a gulp of air, and the arrows are flying, and he takes an arrow in the arm, and he dives back down, and he stays as long as he can until he's about to pass out. He comes back up for air, and he does it one more time, and eventually he escapes. There's no more fire, there's no more arrows, and but he's all alone, and he kind of like, drags himself out of the river and gets into a safe spot and, and passes out. And I think this is another great movie moment. You can imagine the cinematography of Corwin like diving deep into the river and then coming up for air and getting hit by all the arrows and, and doing it again. You know, he takes an arrow through the biceps and he breaks it off, you know, cause he's obviously a badass and, you know, he eventually emerges unharmed, but at what cost, just another total slaughter. He wakes up. He contacts Blaze. Um, we get a little bit more confirmation about the geography when he says that he's on the left bank of the river as you'd face the sea. And he says that's to the north bank. So again, confirming the map all over the place. Blaze says he'll send someone to get him, which I think is a little weird. Like, why doesn't he just come through the Trump? Uh, no real explanation for that, but he stays put. And Blaze says, quote, I'm assembling our forces now. I've already got over 2,000 together and Julian won't come near us. More keeps straggling in every minute, end quote. And, you know, for an army that started at 300,000, you know, they're pulling together a few thousand. It's like not looking good. Now, he knows that the coronation of Eric is coming soon. He can't quite remember, but he thinks it's within a couple of days. So there's just more pressure on the timing. They've got to get there. 
They march, they march, and finally they come to the foot of Colvier. And there's one more battle there. It's sort of the penultimate battle. Julian's remaining forces are there. They combine with the remainder of Cain's fleet, who are now fighting as foot soldiers. And you've got the remainder of the Blaze and Corwin army, and you've just got this battle, and it turns out that Corwin and Blaze win. And Corwin says, quote, Blaze stood there and called things like Robert E. Lee at Chancellorsville, and we took them. We had maybe 3,000 men when we'd finished off everything Julian had to throw against us. Julian, of course, escaped, but we had won. There was celebration that night. We had won. End quote. Now, the Chancellorsville reference is interesting. According to Battlefields.org, quote, The Battle of Chancellorsville is considered General Robert E. Lee's greatest military victory. It was the last battle for Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, who was mortally wounded by friendly fire. It ended in Confederate victory, General Robert E. Lee's audacious decision to take on Major General Joseph Hooker's Army of the Potomac, though he had less than half the number of men, resulted in an improbable win for the South, end quote. So Zelazny knows what he's doing with this reference. He also talks about serving under Robert E. Lee at another point, so just kind of affirming now that Corwin did, in fact, fight on the side of the Confederacy. Another example of him just kind of throwing in with the wrong side of history. And now they've got 3,000 men to take against Colvier and to attack Amber. And Corwin says they've lost 98% of their troops. And so at this point, as a reader, you're just like, oh, man, there's just no way. But of course, they can't turn back. They've come this far. Corwin talks about how he's afraid. He knows they have no chance, but... The men seem to be happy with the victory, and you know you can just imagine the scene where Blaze and Corwin are kind of having drinks over a campfire, you know, as they camp and get ready for the battle in the morning, and they're just kind of looking at each other, going like, "No way, we're hosed." And the next day they begin the ascent, and what follows now is perhaps the most memorable battle sequel from the entire series. It's like something out of Game of Thrones. I don't have any evidence of this, but I have to believe that this is the scene that George R. R. Martin kind of loves the most and thinks about. What you've got, basically, is the mountain of Colvier and the city of Amber is on top of it, and they're going to take this staircase up the side. But it's not like a staircase that you would sort of take up to a hill. or to the, It's like etched into the side of this mountain, and it's kind of a sheer face, and it goes up. And as they go up, like if you were to fall off of this staircase, you kind of go straight down to the beach and the sea, which kind of comes right up to the mountain. It's like a sheer face, and the staircase is zigzagging straight up it. And he calls this the eastern entranceway to Amber. And he knows that it goes up to the Great Arch, and you know it's kind of cool because that's the inverse of Rebma. And he talks about marching up, and then pretty soon Eric's guys start coming down, and these two armies meet. And because it's so narrow, you basically just get mano a mano, one guy dies, or the other, and then the next two fight. Corwin says, quote, There would come a clash of arms, a cry, and a man would be brought by. Sometimes he would be red, occasionally furry, but more often he wore Eric's colors, end quote. 
And so they're going up, and it looks like between the red guys and the furry guys, they're basically better than Eric's guys. And But it's just incredible. Like, he says that they would go by. So imagine someone's just falling straight down the side of this mountain and past the people below. And it's really cool. Like, Corwin and Blaze are sort of in the middle, and they've got this vanguard, and they are chipping away at it. And it's working its way toward Eric and Blaze. He says, quote, perhaps 50 of our vanguard remained, then 40, 30, 20. We were about two-thirds of the way up by then, and the stair zigged and zagged its way back and forth across the face of Colvier, end quote. And then he talks about how they had originally planned to come around and attack Amber from behind, through the forest and so forth, and you know, the fire and Julian's troops had changed all that. And so now they're sort of forced to do this more direct assault up the eastern face of Colvier. And I think it's really great the way that Zelazny kind of slows down time. It's very cinematic. Like at the beginning of this chapter, he's describing groups of men that are being lost. You know, we lost a thousand here and we lost a thousand there. And then he starts talking about, you know, or 40 men left, and then 30, and then 20, and then as it sort of works down to the one-by-one encounter, then he kind of describes each encounter with a little bit more description, you know, the back and forth, and then one guy got hit on the shoulder and fell over, and he's just narrowing and narrowing and narrowing down to these one-on-one encounters, and it, it has the effect of kind of slowing time down and really focusing in, and then finally they get to Blaze. And then Blaze kind of leaps into action and got this incredible, memorable scene of him just like wailing on Eric's troops. And he's just taking them because he's a prince of amber. He's got superhuman strength. He's incredible with a sword. And he's just slaughtering these guys one by one. He's got a dagger. He's got a sword. He's doing all these sword tricks. Corwin says, quote, It was the most phenomenal display of swordsmanship and endurance I'd seen since Benedict had held the pass above Arden against the Moonriders out of Ganesh, end quote. And that's a really memorable quote. Corwin's going to reference the Moonriders out of Ganesh later in the Guns of Avalon. You know, where does Ganesh come from? I think that's a variation on Ganesha, who's a Hindu god. Ganesha is the one that's like usually depicted with the head of the elephant, widely revered. And I think Ganesh is just a variation on that. So he's kind of drawing from Hindu here. Anyway, Blaze keeps slaughtering these guys. And Corwin says, quote, It went in up to the hilt in the throat of the next man. Blaze sprang over two steps and hamstrung the man behind him, casting him downward. Then he cut upward, ripping open the belly of the one behind that one. End quote. And it's a good reminder of just how brutal and gruesome a scene this would be. You know, it, it, it feels like it wouldn't quite be Lord of the Rings. It'd be like a cross between Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. You know, despite the fact that this is kind of this vibrant fantasy, high fantasy world, like there is still blood and guts here. And then, of course, we all know what happens next. Blaze finally gets tired, and he goes back and forth with one of the guys, and it's sort of a drawn-out encounter, and he kills him, but the next guy is, like, ready, and gets Blaze, and they go over the edge together. And Blaze is falling down, and Corwin throws him his trumps, and the reader is kind of left in this purgatory, 
We don't know if Blaze lived or died. And now the stakes for Corrin are even more dire. He's thrown Blaze's trumps. He doesn't have kind of like get out of jail free card anymore. And he kind of has to put it out of his mind because the guys are there and he starts fighting. And then Corwin takes on the column of Eric's men. And I think we can imagine in retrospect how ironic it is that Corwin threw his trumps to Blaze. Like, Blaze is almost certainly in contact with Fiona at this point. Like, based on everything we learn about the power that particularly Blaze, Brand, and Fiona have over the Trumps, but even Kane, who knows how to eavesdrop with the Trumps, like, based on all those things and based on things that are going to happen in the future, like, it's pretty clear that Fiona is probably with Blaze this entire time, like, ready to snatch him out if things get too dangerous. They would have set that up, right? And in the movie, you could even hint at that. You know, that Blaze is off to the side in the morning before they start up the Colvier, and he's kind of doing something, talking to somebody we don't quite know who. And it's just pretty clear that she would be there watching and waiting and ready to pull him out. And I can imagine this scene where Blaze falls onto the floor in Fiona's apartment, wherever she is, and and he's holding Corwin's trumps, and they're looking at each other going like, oh, what an idiot. Poor Corwin, he had to throw his cards away. But that's kind of part of Corwin's softening, if you will, like his development of empathy. It's part of his journey. Uh, anyway, he kind of puts it out of his mind, and Corwin keeps fighting and fighting. He gets to the top. And by the way, they get to this broad stair that's the reflection of the one in Rebma. So I had always kind of had it in my head that the whole staircase up Colvier is the same as the Fiella Bionin, which is the whole staircase down to Rebma. But in fact, no, it's just this last little bit where you kind of get this broad staircase that goes up through the arch. That's the staircase that's reflected in amber. And all the zigzagging that they've done up Colvier is just specific to Colvier. And then finally, Corwin says, quote, we passed through, we entered Amber, end quote. And that's very similar phrasing to when they passed through the arch and entered Rebma. And basically, Corwin's made it to the top. He's got a handful of furry guys. It's kind of this pathetic army at this point, and they keep fighting. And Corwin sees Eric in the distance. He's shouting orders. You know, it's kind of cool. They're like within a thousand yards of Amber. They're battling their way through the city streets at this point, I guess. They're going down the you know, the promenade there. And you can imagine the whole city's on lockdown. And they're fighting and fighting. But it's, it's, it's pretty much useless. And then you get this great line, quote, Let's be brief. They killed everyone but me, end quote. That's so typical of Zelazny's efficiency as a writer when he wants to be. It's been so much buildup over multiple chapters. They've gone from 300,000 men down to just Corwin. And it's an epic slaughter, a complete and total defeat. And Zelazny just throws out that line. They killed everyone but me. And then they throw nets over Corwin, they hog tie him, and they throw him into the dungeon. And it's over. And as a reader, you're just like, oh man, that's just the worst you know here's our hero we've been rooting for him he has like a really powerful objective he wants to be the king in amber eric's this awful guy we've been he's been set up as the evil mad prince of amber 
pretty straightforward story, right? Good is going to triumph over evil. But no, there's a lot more to this story and a lot more to these characters. And Corwin gets thrown into the dungeon. Eric's going to be king in Amber. He says, quote, I knew despair. Soon Eric would be crowned king in Amber. This thing might have already occurred. But sleep was so lovely a thing and I so tired. It was the first real chance I'd had to rest and forget my wounds. The cell was so dark and smelly and damp. End quote. And that's how he wraps up chapter seven. Now, according to Theodore Krulik, the biographer, quote, It wasn't until Zelazny was more than halfway through Nine Princes in Amber that he realized he couldn't tell the whole story in one book. He shelved the finished manuscript and began only a quarter of the second book, The Guns of Avalon, before he put that away also. About a year later, a typist asked him for work, and Zelazny handed her Nine Princes in Amber to type up. After it was published, Zelazny renewed his efforts, writing the rest of the series over the next eight years, end quote. And as we wrap up chapter seven here with Corwin tossed into prison and defeated, Eric's going to be crowned. I kind of like to think that this is the point where Zelazny realized that he's got like a series, a trilogy, maybe more. It's, it's, it's got to be right around here where he's like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have Corrin thrown in jail. have his eyes burned out. And Eric crowned king. You know, later, George R.R. R. Martin takes this technique further, and he just kind of has his heroes killed, and you're like, oh, man, that guy's dead? Yeah, but here it's just like it's it's really throws the reader for a loop. So that's chapter seven. Now chapter eight, Corwin wakes up, goes back to sleep again, and eventually they come for him. And they drag him out of the cell and they clean him up. And there's this cool scene and you're like, what's going on here? But they bathe him and they give him a haircut and get him some fresh clothes and they put him in chains. He's got chains around his wrists. He's got chains around his ankles to be heavy for them to break. He thinks about resisting, but he's like, they're just going to beat the crap out of me and do it again. So he kind of goes along with it. And they've got him all dressed up and they start dragging him through the palace. He says, quote, there was no place for nostalgia as I passed through rooms where we had played as children, end quote. And it's cool to think that this is, you know, the first time Corwin's seeing his home, first time in centuries, except now he's a prisoner. And I like that he says these are the rooms where we'd played as children. And that really makes me think about Corwin as a toddler, baby brand, you know, teenage Fiona. Love to hear more about that. You know, I always wish that the prequel to the Amber series had been about these princes and princesses as kids, toddlers, teens, you know. Anyway, he's dragged through these corridors and up to the dining room. And this becomes kind of a famous room for us as the reader and as the fans, kind of the dining hall, banquet hall. And there's tables everywhere and there's people ready for dinner and he kind of knows what's going on. This is the coronation dinner. 
And he sees lots of faces. He sees Flora, of course. She doesn't want to talk to him. And he sees a guy named Lord Rain. He says, quote, Lord Rain, yes, he had been knighted by me, whom I had not seen in centuries. His eyes turned away when my gaze fell upon him, end quote. And he's setting up Lord Rain here for later in the chapter. We're going to see a bunch more of him. And we get a, a kind of a preview of that Arthurian vibe that he's really going to get into in the next novel. You know, the idea that a Prince of Amber can knight someone and that there are knights in Amber. And then he's seated at the table and he talks about the woman that's sitting next to him. He says, quote, a little wisp of a blonde, end quote. And, you know, there's more of that kind of, let's call it an imbalance in the way that Corwin and Zelazny are treating men and women like we don't get the color of Lord Rain's hair. But uh, with this woman, whose name is Carmel, he kind of starts with the description of her as a blonde. And they have kind of a back and forth and we kind of get Corwin the jerk. He's joking with her and kind of flirting. But Julian's there. He's making fun of Julian. And, you know, what you get is this real, like, surly Corwin. He knows he's screwed, but, you know, they haven't killed him yet. So obviously they're keeping him around for some purpose. And so he's going to just make a scene, basically. Finally, Eric comes in, descends the staircase. You know, there's trumpets. And Eric says, quote, May you dwell in amber forever, which endureth forever, end quote. And everybody raises their glass, and Corwin won't do it. And Julian's like, raise your glass. And Corwin's like, shove it. And and finally, they make him do it, and he pours the glass out. And then everybody has to pour their glasses out, and it's this big scene. And Corwin says, quote, to Eric, who sits at the foot of the table, end quote. And so, again, he's just making this big scene. We get Corwin the smartass. Another great movie moment. You're kind of scared for him because, like, Eric's not going to be happy about that, ruining his dinner. Corwin keeps looking around. He talks about that there's other people at the dinner that he doesn't recognize, and that kind of reinforces how long he's been gone. You know, it's cool that Flora's there. You know, she's getting her reward for serving Eric and being faithful and loyal to him. He says, quote, Cain sat further up along the table at Eric's right hand. I gathered Julian was out of favor. Neither Random nor Deirdre were present. There were many other nobles whom I recognized, some of whom I had once counted as friends, but none of them would return my glances, end quote. So Cain is obviously being rewarded for double-crossing Corwin. That makes sense. And it's kind of cool that Julian is out of favor at this point. He's, he's basically being forced to babysit Corwin and, and sit next to him and kind of put up with all the shenanigans. And why is he out of favor? Well, you know, we know Eric earlier said, Julian, I spit upon him and all of that. And, you know, but they are in this cabal together, so they're allied. But I think it's because we learn later that it was Julian's idea to blind Corwin. You know, there, we, we know that from, from Julian's description much later in the series that he and Eric and Kane are having these arguments. Like, what do we do with Corwin? Like, if Oberon comes back and, and, and we've killed Corwin, that's not going to go well. It's, it's not going to be a good look. You know, if they just throw him in jail, he's going to get out because he's Corwin. You know, and, and somebody will figure a way to rescue him or whatever. And so you can imagine they were having some heated arguments, you know, about what to do. And they didn't agree. 
And that's part of why I think Julian's out of favor at this point. You know, we'll learn that Eric actually doesn't want to be coronated this quickly. He's afraid that Oberon's going to come back and, you know, he doesn't want to be judged by Oberon as having killed Corwin for sure. And he doesn't probably even want to be judged by Oberon for blinding Corwin. But, you know, we learn later that Julian argues that the redheads are going to kill Corwin if, if they get a hold of him. And by blinding him and throwing away the key, it sort of gets him out of the way. And they all kind of imagine that his eyesight's going to come back one day. And so, anyway, that ends up being Julian's idea. Eric doesn't like it at first. They've been arguing about it, like, probably as recently as the day before. And, you know, I can imagine that Eric is just assigning Julian to sit near Corn and keep an eye on him as part of the fallout of that argument. Anyway, next we have the coronation. And... Another incredible scene. They all kind of get up after the meal and go to the throne room. And Eric stands before the throne. Everybody's bowed. Corwin, of course, doesn't want to bow. And they kind of push him down to his knees. There's music. Quote, the music rose up softly. It was green sleeves. And somewhere at my back, Julian said, behold, the crowning of a new king in amber. End quote. And it's kind of fun that Zelazny uses green sleeves here. And we all know that tune. And what's interesting is green sleeves, it's a traditional English folk song. Looking at Wikipedia, it looks like it was registered in 1580. So it's actually like almost exactly when Corwin is banished to Shadow Earth and shows up in London during the plague. This is maybe a few years before that, but it's like right around that time. So it's almost like... Did Corwin write Green Sleeves? But anyway, you know, Green Sleeves is very, very traditional song, and it's it's that tune is has been repurposed for Christmas carols. You know, what child is this? You know, for me as like teenager reading this, that always stuck with me, and like I kind of looked it up, and like I just always had that song in the back of my head. It's like that's Amber music, you know. And there's one more thing about green sleeves in Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor, which was written in 1597. The character Mistress Ford refers twice to the tune of green sleeves. And Falstaff later exclaims, Let the sky rain potatoes, let it thunder to the tune of green sleeves. So Shakespeare's picked up on this, and you know, we can imagine that's possibly where Zelazny is pulling this from as well because we know he's so steeped in Shakespeare. Anyway, then the crown of amber comes out and Cain is carrying it. You know, he's got it on this cushion. He doesn't want to touch it. It's all very formal and awesome. And and then something incredible happens. They bring the crown to Corwin and they tell Corwin that he has to take it and give it to Eric. And Corwin's like, no, I'm not doing that. And... They're like, yeah, you're going to give it to Eric. And, they're like, and he's like, no, I'm not doing that. And they beat him, you know, and he's like, no, I'm not doing it. And they beat him again. And he tries to strike out, but he can't because he's like chained there, you know, and they're just humiliating him, right? And finally, Corwin takes it and he says, quote, I held it in both hands for a moment and then quickly placed it on my own head and declared, I crown me, Corwin, King of Amber, end quote. And... 
there's like a murmur that goes through the hall where people are like, oh shit, you know, he just crowned himself. That technically makes him king, you know? So that's kind of awesome. And, you know, Julian's not phased by it and they just, you know, beat him senseless again. And then they're like, take the crown and give it to Eric, you know, and just keep trying over and over. And then finally, Corwin takes it and he throws it at Eric and Eric catches it, you know? And so that's just an awesome movie moment. I mean, this whole scene just be an amazing scene in the film. And Eric says, quote, thank you. Now hear me, all you present and all of those who listen in shadow. I assume the crown and throne this day. I take into my hand the scepter of the kingdom of Amber. I have won the throne fairly and I take it and hold it by the right of my blood, end quote. And Corwin's like, you're a liar, you know, and Eric crowns himself anyway, and it's just awesome. And then they've dragged Corwin up to Eric, and Eric leans forward, and he whispers, quote, your eyes have looked upon the fairest sight they will ever hold. Guards, take Corwin away to the smithy. Let his eyes be burnt from his head. Let him remember the sights of this day as the last he might ever see. Then cast him into the darkness of the deepest dungeon beneath Amber and let his name be forgotten, End quote. And Corrin spits and he's beaten and it's just awesome. And before we get to that, a couple of things. You know, as I said, we'll learn later that Eric was actually hesitant about being crowned. He wanted to just assume a protectorship. And it's kind of true that we don't ever really hear Eric saying earlier in the book that he, like, really wants to be king. It's it's more that he knows others are coming, and he prefers, like, his claim over Corwin, over Blaze. And, you know, we'll learn later that the coronation is largely to just make it harder for the redheads to press their claim. And that, again, they'd all disagreed. And Eric, you know, at this point, he believes that Oberon lives and is going to come back, and he wants to be able to step down gracefully when Oberon comes back. He really didn't want to take the throne this way. Now, obviously, like, Eric wouldn't mind being king of Amber, and, and but it, it does seem like he cares about it being done legally, which is not the kind of guy that Corwin is making Eric out to be. But, you know, again, through all that we're going to learn, you know, it does seem like Eric kind of cares about the legality of this. But... He's certainly putting on a great show, so, you know, disagree but commit, and he's pretty committed. And then the other thing that's super interesting here is all of those who listen in shadow, and that's kind of interesting, like, are people in shadow listening to the coronation? Like, how is that happening? And that's just kind of a little piece of world building that's just sort of thrown away, and, you know, we know from earlier that actions in Amber are reflected in shadow. And so maybe that's what he means here, that this coronation is going to have kind of reverberations through shadow. But he actually says those who listen, like they're tuned into some radio show or something. I don't know. It's kind of fascinating. And then anyway, back to Corwin, he says, quote, that which he said was done to me, end quote. And his eyes are burnt out from from his head. And, uh, you know, this is like an incredible moment. And Corwin will talk about it later. He wakes up in the middle of the night, like screaming as he remembers the hot irons like coming toward his face and all of that. It's pretty brutal. And then he's thrown back into the cell. And at some point, and he doesn't quite remember when it happened, but at some point he pronounces the curse. Quote, 
I knew that Eric would never rest easy upon the throne, for the curse of a Prince of Amber, pronounced in a fullness of fury, is always potent, end quote. And so that's going to become super important to the rest of the story, but it's a little bit of a throwaway here. And you get kind of back to Corwin, like, oh my god, he's blind. You know, he tries to cry, but he can't. There's no tears. And we just get this description of the horror of being blinded and thrown in the cell, and it's pretty grim. And the biographer Theodore Krellick takes this opportunity to praise Zelazny's ability to create empathy with his characters. He says, quote, When we read a Zelazny story, the characters become very close to us. They touch us with penetrating emotion. We realize the long agony of despair that Corwin, Prince of Amber, suffers when he is blinded and tossed into a dungeon by his evil brother Eric. We recognize these people. They are what we have been. They are what we would like to be. End quote. Thank you.